Section 22 of The Perfect World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. The Perfect World by Ellis Grimsour. Section 22. Jupiter and the Jovians. The sweet-toned bell in the observatory at Minivar rang violently and startled the students out of their usual calm and placidity. Colmer Van looked up from his studies. "'What is it, my Waco?' said he in his own language to his friend. "'I know not, my Colmer Van. Let us go to the turret room and see.' The two astronomical students at the most important meteorological college on the whole of Guimar went swiftly up the wide marble stairway to their Joe's room. Before they were halfway up, the bell rang louder than before. "'Haste, my Waco,' said Colmer Van. "'The Joe is anxious.' As they reached the archway leading into the experimenting room, the Joe met them. At last, he said testily, at last you are come. I summoned you as there is a most remarkable phenomenon registered by the sensitive disk. After we recorded the destruction of the planet Quilfus, you will remember, we discovered a new comet or meteor that seemed to have separated from the planet itself. We witnessed this extraordinary star whirling toward us, daily nearer and nearer. Our learned abjos consulted together as to the meaning of this extraordinary thing. At last I was consulted, and by the aid of every scientific means we possessed, we tried to discover the substance of this new moving orb. You recollect? Yes, my Joe, answered Colmervan, the senior student. Look, said the Joe triumphantly, and he led the way to a large disk that stood in front of the large window. This disk was of glass and was connected by etheric pipes to a large telescopic tube fixed outside the window. It was by the aid of this that the Kimarnians studied the solar system, and learnt about the other worlds in the sky. As Colmervan looked into the disk, he saw, by reflection, a peculiar body suspended in the heavens. Stationary, it rested near Wimir and Cosley, the twin stars of Gorlin. "'What is it?' he asked eagerly, while Waco, the younger student, stood silent, listening eagerly to the conversation. "'It is the meteor of Marfaru,' said he. "'It is the strange body that detached itself from Quilfus when the life of that unfortunate planet was run. "'But it is still now, my Joe. "'The four Mevors have not yet risen, my son. "'In fourteen Permos from now, they will be bright and shining. "'When they are at their full, we will draw that orb within our surrounding vapors.' Then we must direct our light rays upon it and draw it within our atmosphere. It is a wonderful thing, my son, and will aid us in our knowledge of science. My theory is that it is a minute portion of the planet Quilfus itself. Oh, very small, hardly as big as the Rorca's palace, but the knowledge of its composition will help us in our research. Take turn and watch with me, my sons, and at the right moment we will direct our ray upon it. Eagerly the students watched. The honor was great that Joe had put upon them, and they were eager to be present when the light of the four full Mevors should shine upon the strange presence in the sky. But the time that Kaimo sinks to rest, my sons, the fourth Mevar will be at the full, and we will watch the developments with interest. The three surrounded the little disk. The pale beams from the Mevors shone distinctly on the glass. There was a movement. The foreign body moved slowly toward them. The ray! cried the Joe. Summon the Abjos. Ten Abjos appeared at Waco's call. 
They were all dressed in the green tunic and vest and short cloak, the symbol of their calling as the highest astronomers in the land, bar one, the Joe himself, who wore a voluminous cloak and tall conical hat in addition. The wise men adjusted the focusing apparatus and directed the nozzle toward Weimer and Cosley. A whirring noise sounded, and then suddenly shot out a most glorious ray. When Kaimo has risen but four thoughts, the orb will be here, announced the Joe. Weka, go call Wazikashta. Tell him the Joe has words of import to utter. Soon Wazikashta appeared. He was a handsome man, fair-haired, long-limbed. He wore his blue toga as became him as Waz of the air birds, the vessels which were used by the inhabitants of Kimar to journey by the sky. Fetch in that strange star, O Waz, said the Joe. Bring it to earth, and I will await its arrival here. Wazikeshta bowed low. Your will shall be done, my Joe, said he, and he went swiftly to the place where his airbirds were housed. Moshonia, said he to his Wazmar O Lieutenant, order out six airbirds. We go on a mission for the Joe. In a very short space of time, six beautiful birds rose from the ground and skimmed toward their goal, which was now approaching very rapidly. My Waz, cries Meshonia suddenly, it is part of no planet that we are approaching. See, there is glass in front, and men like ourselves are looking toward us. They are like us, yet unlike us, said Wajikesta. They are habited in somber clothing. They look dark and gloomy. Where can they come from? asked Meshonia wonderingly. All sons of Kimar would signal us. They are strangers from another world, I fear. Gradually they circled round the Argenta and brought her safely to the ground. They watched the lifting of the shutters curiously. This was indeed the strangest air bird they had ever seen. When Sir John gave his wild cry, the Kimarnians realized that the strangers who had come in so wonderful a manner to their land had suffered acutely. Send for six bjors, said Wajikesta quickly. These friends are ill. In the shortest space of time, the bjors, the Kimarnian carriages, appeared. They were comfortable litters like vehicles, laden with rugs of silk and downy cushions. Above were canopies of silk, which shaded the occupants, who swung hammock-wise from a wheeled frame, into the shafts of which were harnessed magnificent collis, beasts very similar to Shetland ponies, only with long curly hair. At a command from Wazikeshta, Mashonia and another leapt nimbly over the bulwarks of the Argenta, and without a word, in turn carried all the erstwhile prisoners of the airship, and placed them on cushions in the comfortable Kimarnian equipages. As Alan was carried past the Waz, he murmured feebly, A guard for the Argenta, please. A look of surprise passed over the Kimarnian's face. What meanest thou? he asked. A guard, urged Alan. The Argenta contains all our possessions. A guard? answered Keshta. Nay, why should we do that? It is safe there. It does not belong to us. Fear not. No one will touch it, my friend. Gently the Collis stepped out, drawing easily the Bjors and their occupants. Drive to the palace of the Jakak, said Wajikesta. We must acquaint him first with the news of the arrival of these strangers. The weary travelers saw nothing of the country through which they passed. They were too weary and worn to raise themselves on the cushions and look around. The cool breeze swept across their faces and refreshed them, so they were content to remain as they were and not think or worry about the future. A runner was sent before to acquaint the Jakak of their near approach, 
and as they stopped at his beautiful palace, men came out, unhooked the hammock part of the bjors, and carried the occupants into the jacquac's presence. He was awaiting them in the cool reception hall, and regal and patriarchal he looked, in his robe of loose green silk, with his golden fillet low upon his brow. "'My brothers,' said he in a low, musical tone, "'welcome to Kimar, the land of all good. Eat first from yonder viands. They will revive you.' Trays daintily laden with food and wine were placed before the hungry travellers. The Jekakalata, consort to the Jekak, attended to Mavis. "'A child,' said she, "'and a woman, too. Come, Persaf, to her husband. Give me that glass of friandkate. It will revive her.' She moistened Mavis's lips with the fragrant wine. Mavis opened her eyes, and as she looked at the kindly woman's face, she burst into tears. "'Who are you?' she cried. "'I am Mirisu, the Jakatalata.' she replied. Drink this. It will do you good. Mavis drank long of the sweet liquor and ate the strange fruits that were placed before her. Alan, as usual, was the first to recover and made a movement as if to rise from the bjor. Nay, said Persoff, do not move, I beg you. Rest, and later you can tell us your story. Then he turned to Desmond. She with the babe, she is yours? How did you know? asked the perplexed husband. "'By the look in your eye when my Mirisu handled your babe,' said the wise old man sagely. "'It was the look of possession.' "'Yes, she is my wife,' said Desmond. "'Wife! Ah, that is the word. "'Now rest among the cushions of the Bjors. "'Rooms are prepared for you. "'Sleep, my friends, until the Kaima rises twice again. "'Then, refreshed and strong, we will welcome you among us "'and listen with interest to your story.' The Decaque's palace was of a glorious green marble, highly polished. In the entrance hall was a huge fountain. Six beautiful maidens, their garments chiseled out of colored marble, held large shells from which poured water into the basin beneath. The figures were life-size and gracefully molded. Lovely water flowers grew all around, and colored fish swam in and out among the pebbles and plants. Up a wide stairway, which branched out into large galleries, the strangers were carried, the jacock himself leading the way, as if he were doing homage to the Rorca himself. They wended their way through a narrower passage, which widened out again into a spacious loggia. In the very center of this space, four malachite pillars, highly polished, supported a crystal shell out of which poured sparkling waters into a pond beneath. There were six doors round the loggia. At the first the jacock stopped, opening it himself, led the way in. With gentle hands, Desmond and Mavis were transferred to soft, downy beds. Rest, my friends, and sleep until Morcava brings you wine and food. Then the other three were taken to separate sleeping apartments, where their weary limbs rested in contentment on the soft, downy cushions. Desmond and Mavis's room was perhaps the largest, a glorious room with a wide balcony upon which were growing the most beautiful creepers and plants, with wonderful perfumes and flowers. An enormous four-poster bed stood in the center of the room, with its back immediately in front of the door. A canopy of silk was overhead. There were no sheets or blankets upon it, but there was an abundance of cushions and silken rugs of all hues. Easy chairs, plenty of mirrors, and a dressing table furnished the room. The walls were of a polished pale pink marble, and the fittings, tapestries, and silken hangings were all of colors that blended 
and made one harmonious whole. All the other rooms were similar, except in the coloring, and on the polished marble floors were spread rugs of exotic colors. A silver bell tinkled. To Mavis it sounded like the Angelus on a summer morning. She opened her eyes. Again the bell sounded. "'Where am I?' she cried, and with sudden remembrance. "'Baby! Where's Baby?' Desmond woke. "'Where's Baby, Des?' she asked again piteously, and even as she spoke she heard the sound of a tiny chuckle, and by her side on a bed, the miniature of the one she was on lay her baby, crooning with delight. The bell tinkled again. Desmond went to the door and opened it slightly. A smiling girl was outside with a table on wheels. "'You're Mushti,' said she, wheeling it toward him. "'To eat?' queried Desmond. "'Of course.' It is pleasant on the Vala, outside among the flowers. Have it there with your friends. Thank you. It's breakfast, Mavis, said Desmond. Look out on the balcony and see if Uncle John is there. Mavis was almost too bewildered to ask any questions and obeyed. There was a tiny gate dividing their balcony from the next, and she went through. Uncle John? she called softly. Sir John, Allen, and Masters appeared at the window of the next room. You're awake, then? laughed Alan. Yes. Have you had any food? asked Desmond. Alan laughed. A table each and chock full. Shall we wheel ours along and all have it together? In a trice the six were sitting down to the first real meal they had had since they had so miraculously escaped from the end of the world. The tables were of different colored glass and were laden with food very different from that to which they had been accustomed. There were jugs full of steaming liquid, neither tea, coffee, nor cocoa, but with a reminiscent flavor of all three, and extremely refreshing. There were wines, fruits whole and fruits compote. There were cereals served almost like porridge, and there was bread, too. Bread and tiny crisp rolls, biscuits sweet and biscuits plain, and pats of golden butter. It was a delightful meal, refreshing, invigorating, and so different from the stodgy, unwholesome tinned meats they had been living on for so long. There was also a tiny tray for the baby, a bowl of fresh new milk and some rusks. A plate of some kind of arrowroot mixture was greatly appreciated by little John Allen, who cried out, More, peas, Mum, more! <laughs> the little beggar likes it, said Sir John. He appreciates the change, too. Well, here we are, all on land again at last, and among friends. "'What are you going to do?' asked Mavis. "'We'll throw ourselves on the mercy of the Jovians, of course, "'make up our minds to settle down in a new world, "'and live the remainder of our lives in peace and contentment.' "'Shan't we ever go home again?' Mavis's eyes widened, "'and she looked imploringly at the others. "'The truth was forced on her mind at last. "'She had no home. "'Gone were all her pretty possessions, "'gone her trinkets, her books, her silver.' Gone also her delicate trousseau, her frocks, lingerie, jewels. Everything was gone. The world itself had vanished. Now, my dear, said Sir John, we must acclimatize ourselves to this new life. After all, we can easily do that. We have been treated as honored guests, so I must speak to the Jacoque and find out our future standing in this world. They speak English, said Alan wonderingly. How is that? Surely we are the first English people who have found their way here? There can't be a colony of Britishers in Jupiter. The bell sounded again, and Alan went to the door. 
Wazikeshta stood outside. The Jakakis eager to see you, said he. If you feel strong enough and sufficiently rested, come with me and I will lead you to him. They followed him down the stairs to the entrance hall and threw into a spacious apartment. The reception room, said the Waz. The Jakak wishes not to be on formal terms with you. He bade me bring you to his garden room. Through a doorway they went and out into the most glorious garden they had ever seen. Fountains splashed in the sunlight. Tiny brooks gurgled over white stones as they wound round beds of flowers. There was a riot of color in this wonderful garden. Glorious flowering trees and shrubs abounded. Creeper-covered archways were everywhere, and at the further end they could see a creeper-covered arbor hung with exotic blooms. Inside this were easy chairs, settees, and comfortable lounges. The Jakak, the Mirasu, his Jakalata, were seated there awaiting their arrival, and rose to greet them. Now, tell us your story, said the Jakak, for wonderful it must be. First, said Alan, who at Sir John's request acted as spokesman, how is it you can understand our language? Surely English isn't spoken here. English? Yes, we are English. We come from that part of our world that was known as England, you know. We have the gift of tongues, my friend, said the Jakak. Until we spoke to you, we had never before heard your tongue. But the moment you spoke, we understood. I cannot describe our gift. It just is. We of Kimar all speak one tongue. No confusion is here. Until you came, we had never had the opportunity to benefit from this gift we all believed we possessed. Today, all Kimarnians are thanking Mitzer, the great white glory and tower of help, for his graciousness in having conferred upon us this gift, and for allowing us to have the means given us for using the gift of tongues. We understand all of us. We may not understand every expression you utter, for things are different in other worlds, and we ourselves no doubt possess peculiarities of our own. Still, we can converse freely with you. It is a wonderful gift to possess, said Sir John. Now your story, insisted the Jakak gently. So Alan told the whole story of his life since the time when he and Desmond first went to Marshfielden. He told of the light, and the people of Calvar, of their wonderful escape from the bowels of the earth, and of the end of the world. So Quilfus is no more, said the Jakak. Indeed, we witnessed its destruction and thought that your airship was part of the planet itself. And so, he went on, you believe that the end of the world was caused through the failure of the fire in the center of the earth? I feel sure of it, said Alan. During our stay in Calvar, we noticed that the fire grew daily less and less, and the purple people prophesied that when the fire went out, then would come the end of the world. I think that, in its last dying gasp, it tried to get a new lease of life. In its gigantic death struggle, it burst its bonds, and earthquakes, volcanoes, and water sprouts were the result. Oh, it was horrible, said Mavis, shuddering. And your ship, the one you sailed in? You must invite me to see it, said the Jakak. Why, of course, said Sir John. Have you not been? It is not mine, replied the Jakak. It would be an impertinence to pry into your affairs without an invitation. Now, with regard to yourselves, I must see that you go to Hurmori and pay your respects to Aurorka. Hurmori is the chief place in this world of ours. It is there that Aurorka has his palace. Rorka? asked Mavis. What is that? Aurorka rules over the whole of Kimar. 
Have you only one Rorka or king over the whole of Kimar? asked Sir John. Why, of course. Why should we have more? asked Mirisu, smiling. Kimar is one world, with one Rorka. When we have one hundred Jakaks and one thousand Moritus, that is enough, surely, to govern a world? Are you only one nation, then? Naturally. We are all Kimarnians, just one great nation, divided into many families. We all speak the same language, all worship in the same fashion Mitzer, the great white glory and tower of strength, and all live in peace, friendship, and harmony, one with another. But now, my friends, strangers though you are, you are welcome here. I will put at your disposal houses and serving men. We possess nothing, said Sir John. We have no property, no valuables, nothing but the Argenta. How shall we repay your kindness to us? Repay? asked the Jacoque. Nay, that is another word I know not the meaning of. But, began Alan, nay, you are strangers in a strange world. It is our duty to make you all feel at home here. I can see you are of high estate in your own country. You must be of high estate here also. Know you, we are wise in this land. Our Rorka is first, and his spouse, the Rorkata, ranks second. Their offspring and nearest blood relations come next. Then come the Jakaks and the Moritus. Our Jos and Abjos, the Wazi, captains of our airbirds, our learned men and students, down to the serving men and maids, and the builders of our homes and our ships. From highest to lowest, all share pro rata in the things of the world. We are all satisfied. The laws of our land have fixed the rates that are to be paid to each household from the common fund. I assure you, there will be enough and to spare for you. Master spoke for the first time. I am Sir John's servant, he began. No, corrected Sir John. Master's is my faithful friend and adviser. Then you would like him to dwell in the same house with you? Please, said Sir John, and my nephew, Alan, also. And you, no doubt, went on the Jakak, turning to Desmond. You would like to have apartments to yourselves? Thank you, answered Mavis for her husband and herself. Good. I will summon Wajikesta. There are several new houses near at hand. Go with him. You can take your choice. And with a wave of the hand and a smile, they realized that they were dismissed from the presence of the Jakak and his charming wife. Wazikeshta was hovering near and came toward them. He had received his full instructions beforehand. Come, said he. The houses that are unoccupied are quite close. Come and take your choice. How is it, asked Alan, that we can walk so easily now? When we first came out onto the open deck of the Argenta, our limbs were as heavy as lead. We could not walk an inch, and we were so top-heavy we could hardly stand. That is easy to explain replied the Waz. Eight Kaimos have risen since you arrived here. Kaimos? asked Mavis. The Kimarnian names puzzled her. Son? suggested Alan. Ah, you call it son. Yes, since you first came. The sun has sunk seven times. You have slept, breathed in our air. While you were sleeping, our men of science administered medicinal gases through your nostrils. These gases lightened you, took from you the heaviness of your earth, you will find no difficulty now, and he led the way through the garden to the most glorious street it was possible to imagine. Now you will see our country, he continued, and compare it with your own. You are not too tired? he asked Mavis. No, of course not. I feel too excited. 
I want to see your beautiful city, your beautiful country. May I first see that my baby is all right? He gave the necessary permission, and soon she returned. He is sleeping peacefully, said she. Morkaba is watching over him. Now I'm ready. And they all went down the marble steps of the Takak's palace, eager for their first sight of this new, strange land. End of section 22